If you have a Bible, open it to Titus chapter 3. We're finishing up our series today in the book of Titus. We've been in Titus now for eight weeks, which is quite incredible that we could take a three-chapter book and go eight weeks. Uh, But to really uh, break it down and exegete that text, it's really important that we cover all of these things. And so we're going to look at verses 9 through 15. If if you don't have a Bible, there are some in the back corner over here. Um, That is our gift to you if you need one. Um, And also, if you didn't bring yours today, it will also be on the screen behind me. So... Titus chapter 3, starting in verse 9. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greeting to you. Greet those with love who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So like I said, this is our eighth and final week in our series through Titus. And over the last eight weeks, we've really looked at this book through a theme of of three major parts. I just kind of want to break those down for you that that we've really looked at them through elect, teach, and remind. That Paul says that, that, that the church, the elect, the believers, are those that are saved and, saved and those that are served, and so, or those that, that serve. And so we looked at that in, in light of being a gospel-centered church. And then Paul instructed Titus to appoint elders in the church. And we really looked at verses 5 through 9. What is the character of an elder, of a leader in the church? This is what leadership in the church should look like. And then verses 10 through 16, Paul really describes the role and and the duties of the elder, really pointing out conflict in the church and how the elders need to step into this kind of conflict and and care for the flock. And then also there was some, some personal application for the church as a whole. Paul really instructed Titus to teach That the first 10 verses, we looked at the importance of of older men and women discipling younger men and women, that it would be gospel multiplication, and not multiplication of the gospel, but multiplication in the gospel. And then in verses 11 through 15, we looked at gospel living, the the further fruit of gospel multiplication, the, the further importance of a changed life. And then Paul gives us several things where he's saying, remind the believers to do this, remind them to understand this, to know this. And so last week we looked at the first eight verses of this chapter, that Christians by their new birth in Christ should live a new life where they're faithful to good works. And so now this week, Paul is giving a further and final reminder to the believers about being engaged with others, but not entangled with others. The importance of that, that a healthy church works hard to be in unity with others. And in our text that we just read, Paul's reminding the church how to live and how to have discernment and conversations and connections with others and how to step into and even how to step out of relationship as even we'll see instructed by Jesus in Matthew 18. 
And so it's very easy for us, I think, to kind of gloss over or skip over a closing instruction. We kind of think, well, this is the intro, this is the outro, but the further that I've studied the word of God, the more I see great intention, how Paul begins his letters to the church and how he closes them out. That Paul repeats himself, in fact, in verse 14, that that what he repeats is so important on the subject of being devoted to good works, he, he repeats himself. But in verses 9 through 11, we really get at the core of our message. Verses 9 through 11, that what our sentence really, your your kind of notes and fill in the blanks from this text is that we need to avoid what is worthless and remove ourselves from those that are divisive so that they may be devoted to good works. So we need to avoid what is worthless. And in verse 9, Paul gives us four things that believers should avoid because allowing ourselves to take part in these things, being in debate and division are both unprofitable and worthless. And so remember, Paul's continuing to speak about what we heard last week when he talked about how believers are to live a new life based on a new birth in Christ. And so as we live these new lives set apart, we need to avoid foolish controversies. Paul says the first thing we need to avoid is foolish controversies. So what that means is that if our life is not fixed on Jesus, what we kind of have a tendency to do is to shift and focus off of our Savior and onto ourself. We we no longer are about the works of Jesus and the agenda of Jesus. We're about our own agenda. So think about that. Think about some controversies that that are foolish. Uh, I I would say a, a major one in our culture today is online arguments. Online arguments. And, and, and these, uh, it, it's both humorous and sad that, that there are people who are trying to engage, I, I almost think somewhat, and maybe not for all, but somewhat think on a relational level um, to post their political views, their re- religious views, how, how you should raise kids, that this is the way. Here, here's the culture and the state we're in, and here's what I think, and here's my argument for this case. Here's my view But all of that is from a disconnected level. All of that is kind of from this backwoods kind of blogger mentality where where it's really this this empty opinion with no engaging of relationship. And and so it's just downright foolish. And then further, I think a lot of these things can be reflected online. I think also there's communicating preference as though it's truth. So I'm not saying communicating the importance of truth. I'm saying communicating your own preference as though it's truth. So we see this a lot in the church versus uh, kind of some things versus uh, traditional versus contemporary worship. That that the traditionalists without the instruments or this is where we get, we're more holy. And and, and then the contemporary guys are like, we're closer to God. And there's, there's this division on this preference. There isn't clarity in scripture where it says, this is how you must lead the band. The only clarity is that it must bring glory to God. And so we have to be careful with our preferences, not claiming them to be truth. Another one that that would cause division in church is some who say, you have to have communion served every single weekend. And some would say, uh, we we do it quarterly, we do it monthly. I think the importance is you you need to take part in that. But scripture is not clear on how often Scripture is very clear that the, that the church often gathered daily sometimes. They broke bread together, but the instruction of communion doesn't give a downright clear instruction of it has to be at every Sunday gathering. 
And so often I think what we get into is this communication type where it's more on our preference than on the truth of Scripture. And so then what creeps in even more is our own method rather than the mission of Jesus. And so we're all about our our method not being focused on the mission of Jesus. So these are just some of the controversies, the arguments, and the quarrels that are foolish for us to get into. And so we need to be careful about what we involve ourselves with. We need to be very careful because there are ways in which you and I are not being Christ-like. There's ways in which you and I can step into to these online debates, these, these conversations where the intention may be good, but the result is harmful, both for others and for yourselves. And, and what happens then for us is we tend to get into a type of worldliness. So let's be very real. As Paul says, avoid foolish controversies. The reality is there's no room to be filled with Christ in our lives when we're so full of ourselves. There's no room for Christ to be filled in us if we're so full of ourselves. And so the bottom line is that certain topics and issues simply are not profitable. They're not good for us. They they don't point to a life devoted to Christ and serving others. So as we look to avoid what is worthless, it means we need to reject our own ways to seek after Christ's. And let me just say this, that, that I don't have in my notes, but I think is really important. Consider what you are posting online. I think in today's culture, we, we have one of the most disconnected cultures ever. We're more connected than we ever have been in the history of the world, and yet we're more disconnected and more isolated than we ever have been. That, that's, that's a weird issue. to to be dealing with. But the importance then is as we step into that kind of community that's really isolated, we we need to be careful what we're posting. There's a lot of believers who profess Christ to be Lord of their life and post things like they don't even know his stance on them. Okay? And and so there's some things there we need to be really clear on. We, We need to be very careful about what we're posting and really ask ourselves, am I posting things that Christ would post? Go, go kind of 80s and 90s with me for, for a second and just ask, what would Jesus do? Okay, get the bracelet if you need it, but be careful what you're doing because a lot of the times we, we tend to step into these foolish controversies. And then the second thing we need to avoid is genealogies. And, and apparently it was, a, it was a common thing to speculate about a person's ancestry and really claim some spiritual significance. I mean, this was even an issue in, in, in John the Baptist's ministry where he addressed in in Matthew 3, 9, he says, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. There's all of these issues of genealogy over time, and and this might be similar to someone claiming being related to Albert Einstein. So therefore, because of that, they're stating that by that belief, they're smarter than you are, and they should be respected for the fact that their ancestor is Albert Einstein. These are some of the issues of what the church was dealing with. And Paul quite literally told Titus, and he even told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, he told him, don't get into this. Don't go down this path because it can lead to division. So Paul is telling Titus, avoid this type of talk altogether. Don't get into these conversations. Avoid these issues. The third thing we need to avoid is dissensions. And here, Paul is really leading into his main issue 
But this one is still important to note because Paul lists it apart from the next. The dissension is where the disagreement and conflict ends in either division or hostility. So there's no good in it. So we really need to consider how we step into conflict and what we say. See, Paul's not, Paul's not telling the church to be passive. He's not telling the church to not lean into conflict. He's telling the church, be careful with how you step into conflict. So in conflict, as you step into it, really ask yourself, are you hearing the other person and are you fighting in a way that's Christ-like? Because it's possible for an argument to end well. And as believers, we, we need to work to see that happen. I think a lot of people are so afraid of conflict, they, say, they see no resolve that could be good. But there's a lot of conflict that can end well if Christ is at the center of the believer. There was, there was one, and I'm going to try and make this short, but there was one conflict I, I had with a man that I was working with. And he called me very frustrated because of a communication issue. Um, that as I was working with some of his customers, he believed that, um, that they weren't getting the, the proper service, but yet the service that I was providing, he didn't understand how it worked. Uh, it was in the field of IT. Nobody understands how that field works. But basically, as I was on the phone with him for over two hours, the conversation began with how infuriated he was with me. And really, as I went to hear him, the realization was his frustration was not towards me. It was towards the fact that the customer was frustrated and he didn't know how to deal with that conflict. And he was afraid, even though he was a believer, he was afraid that by addressing this conflict with me, we would go our separate ways. A man who believed in Jesus, he believed that the only way that him and I could do conflict was by pointing out the issue, giving our own opinions, and going our separate ways. By the end of that argument, I leaned into the relationship, and we clarified what the issue really was, and we're still friends to this day. We're not close, but things were made clear. And so as believers, I think this is very important. I think there are many, especially us men, I think we're very cowardly to step into conflict. We're so afraid of offending others, of the differences of views and opinions, but we're called to step into conflict. This is incredibly important. And so as we talked about elders several weeks back, what I said was you, you need men who don't like conflict, but are willing to step into it. And so all of us together, we're called to step into conflict, that we would desire to see a greater unity, see resolve. And then finally, Paul says that we also need to avoid quarrels about the law. That the law really means old covenant. That the Old Testament, that word, really means old covenant. And what we have in the New Testament is the new covenant. And there's nothing wrong with studying the old covenant, but we need to study the law, the old covenant, in a way that is profitable. And so throughout the New Testament, Jesus in the, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Luke himself in, in the book of Acts when he writes, and Paul in his letters all taught that the old covenant, the law, is now obsolete. The old law is now obsolete. It's been replaced by our new covenant in Jesus' blood. And so Hebrews 8.13 says this, in, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is already ready to vanish away. And so we don't study the law in order to follow it because the law is no longer what defines a relationship with God and what that looks like. Christ is that definition. 
But we can, in, in a profitable way, we can study the law. We can study the law for what it reveals about God, what it teaches about human nature, and also because it illustrates many biblical concepts that are good for us to learn, such as, such as atonement. And if you study it rightly, you'll see Jesus throughout the whole Old Testament leading into the New Testament and how that Old Covenant brings us into New Covenant. And so there are a lot of great reasons to study the law, but some ways, as Paul addresses of studying the law, are merely divisive, that they would fall into the category of foolish controversies. That even we saw this when the elders are instructed to lean into the conflict with the false teachers. They were really just skewing the law. They were the circumcision party who were saying Jesus and or, or Jesus plus this or, or this plus Jesus. And it was wrongly communicated of a new covenant. That they were mixing those two covenants to fit their own passions and desires. In verse 10 through 11, Paul turns his attention from divisive issues to divisive people. He says this in verse 10 and 11, For a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, having nothing more to do with him, knowing, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So this is a major area where we, where we need believers that don't like conflict. We need not for people to step in and be like, I can do this. I can get them out of here so quick. We don't want those people engaging with them. We need those who don't like conflict, but are willing to step into it for the, for the health of the church, for the unity of the church in hopes of that further unity. And so before we remove ourselves from that person, we need to really encourage them and point them to the truth, which is the gospel. That, that as they're bringing up these controversies, as they're bringing up these divisions, that we would address those issues, that we would lean into relationship with them to see them walk in a corrected path. And Jesus said it this way in Matthew 18, 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother and so what that means is that our first hope and desire with someone who stirs up division should be to see that, that by telling them their fault, what the issue is, that we would gain a brother in Christ, that we would have further unity with them. But here in our text, Paul is really referring to someone who, who is really splitting the church into two different camps, really leading them astray by, by a false belief by what they say and do without repentance, believing that what they're thinking is truth. And so in Crete, those who introduced foolish controversies and disputes about the law were divisive. They, they were not gentle in their belief and saying, Here, here's my belief, here's what I think. They were being very divisive in the church and they were really dividing people by those beliefs. And so instead of promoting, promoting unity within the church, they were causing divisions. And that may sound harsh as Paul says to remove that person after, after reminding them and calling them out in it. But remember what Paul's talking about is someone who's, he's not talking about someone who's immature and confused. He's talking about someone who's fixed in their false belief and they're acting as though they're a teacher and they're unwavering in their own thinking. And so this is even a relevant issue today. This is even an issue that we see that there are many different churches that have been split over issues. 
both small and large, and some from stirring up divisions and leading others down a path of, of newish or, or, or false beliefs. And so there are also others who want to engage and seek clarity on issues, and we need to understand those differences. Because of our fear in conflict, sometimes what we tend to do is we cast away the brother who needs clarity and correction, isn't just trying to stir up division. And so what can unintentionally happen that we need to be conscious of is we need to consider them with the idea of, are they stirring up division or are they trying to seek clarity? So before we go and, and we remove ourselves from that person, I just really would encourage you to, to ask yourself some questions as you're engaging with someone. To ask yourself, are they stirring up division or are they starting discussion? Are they stirring up division or are they starting discussion? I've had many guys in small group who have, who have asked questions that really make some of the men in the group just really kind of shake in their chair. I cannot believe you just asked that question. I can't believe we're about to walk into that as though that's their belief. But there's a difference between someone who's stirring up division. This is the belief and you must believe it and someone starting a discussion. Can you help me be guided through this belief? Is it false? Is it true? Then I think we also need to ask, am I uncomfortable or are they wrong? Am I uncomfortable or are they wrong? Because I think often sometimes by our own discomfort, our lack of knowledge of the word, sometimes we step away from conversations thinking that someone's trying to stir up division. And then also with the person, I think we need to ask, am I seeking unity? In my, in my interaction with them, am I seeking uni, unity or am I just puffed up in my pride of my own knowledge, my own ideas, my own views and my own theology? Are we seeking unity with that person? And then also, I think we need to ask, am I wrongly putting myself in the midst of division because I believe it's what good Christians do? I think there's a lot of people primarily on social media that put themselves out there as though they are the one appointed by God to speak truth on social media. And that's flat out garbage. You are supposed to speak truth with your own life, but shut up on social media. I think this is of utmost importance. There are so many things, I'll be honest with you, that I even see some of you post that is dangerous. It's downright gross. And I think we really need to be careful about what we're posting. Whatever your convictions, whatever your personal opinions are, I think we need to be very, very careful because I think some of our own words and our own actions and our own things can lead people astray, can lead into division. And so really, as we've talked about this whole series, what we need to be is a gospel-centered church. Because when the gospel is central in our lives and in our church, we long to be that kind of community where everyone can see Jesus and seek Jesus. Where everyone can see Jesus and seek Jesus. And this kind of community is not perfect. Okay? This community is not perfect, but it's the people of God learning to be like him. And so regardless of how imperfect we may be, what, what I've said before in the midst of this series is that the church should be the most honest place on earth. It should be the most honest, in the midst of our brokenness, it should be the most honest place on earth, speaking the truth. And really, from here, Paul really says, as we, as we remove ourselves from divisive conversations, remove ourselves from divisive people, 
we need to be devoted to good works. Paul closes out his letter to Titus with a final important reminder in verse 14, that we would learn to devote ourselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. And looking back through the book of Titus, we see this important truth repeated and repeated and repeated several times by Paul. In fact, he says it four other times before this. In chapter two, verse seven, he says, be a model of good works. In verse 14 of chapter two, he says, be zealous for good works. Chapter three, verse one, he says, be ready for every good work. And in chapter three, verse eight, he says, be careful to maintain good works. And what I've said multiple times throughout this series is that in the believer's life, Christ is to be the root where good, where good works are the fruit. That Christ would be the root in our life where good, root, good works are then the fruit. And last week we closed by me asking you, if Christ is the root in your life, where is your fruit? If Christ is the root in your life, where is the fruit of your life? See, good works are, are really works that are good in the eyes of God. And that may seem obvious to some of us, but at the same time, it has a deep meaning and, and needs to be unpacked further. That in the context of the biblical meaning, good works are those that please God. They're the things that please God. So it's possible for a non-believer to do some good works, but they don't please God. A non-believing husband can love his wife and love his kids, but without Christ being the root, they do not please God. So in order for us to do good works and to please God, Christ has to be the root. That by this, we're able to be fruitful in good works, bringing forth fruit that is pleasing to God because of our position in Christ. That remember, if, if Christ is the root, then that is your identity. That it's Christ in you. So if you are in Christ you are in Christ's position, and Christ is in your position. That he suffered and died so that you might be blessed and live. That if you are in Christ, you stand in the position of Christ. You are loved as Christ is loved. You are blessed as Christ is blessed. You are embraced and adored as Christ is embraced and adored. And you're called to be a model of good works as set before you in Christ. So those really who have been radically transformed by the gospel truth and are continuing to be transformed really respond to that transformation by serving and doing good works as unto the God that saved them. So it's, it's not a begrudging service of people hoping that we'll get noticed, but it's, it's serving regardless of who sees as it would be unto the glory of God, unto the pleasure and service of God. Because it's not that we serve to be saved, but that because we are saved, we're empowered by grace through our salvation to serve. And so our serving is not something that God needs. It's something that God desires for us. That it's something that our neighbor needs. And it's a way of loving our neighbors and showing the love of Jesus, showing that the love, of Je- that, the love that Jesus has for us. 
So it's the work of God in our lives put on display for others that they would see him. Jesus even said this in Matthew 5.16. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So not seeing your good works and, and giving glory to you for them, but seeing those good works and giving glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so really the gospel, by its very nature, really produces godliness in us. That, that as I've told you before, as believers, we never leave the importance of the gospel in our lives. That this is what produces godliness, calls us to pursue good works in the life of a believer. That there's an intimate connection between our belief and our behavior. Because the fruit of one's life is dependent on the intake of the truth. We'll never be able to produce good fruit, good, to do good works, if the, if the truth of the gospel is not in us. And so really what that means is what we do provide, provides evidence of who we know. That what we do really provides evidence of who we know. That it's God himself who motivates our works. It's our relationship with Jesus that grounds us. And so let me just ask you as we, as we come to a close in this entire series, if Christ is the root, where is your fruit? If Christ is the root, where is your fruit? And maybe for you, the question really gets into a deeper, a deeper question of what are the fruits what are the fruits? What are the fruits for you? And I think this is something we need to consider. We need to, we need to seek Christ in. Because if Christ is the root, then it will be clear what the fruit is. Let's pray.